You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. that you're here on this summer morning. Uh, we are in the third week of our series on the seven sacraments of the church. If you don't know what a sacrament is, if you haven't been here for the last few weeks, a sacrament is, is I define it as one of the many ways that people experience uh, God. Uh, historically, it's been described as something of like an outward expression of an inward grace, which is like super vague, right? And like, what does that even mean? So I think it's also important to remember that like while the church has historically named seven things as a sacrament, I think there's many ways that we experience God. It's just that these are seven markers that have historically been often held throughout church history. And so if you're wondering, what are those seven? Just as a quick reminder, it's communion, it's baptism, it's confession, it's confirmation, it's marriage, as Reverend Renita preached on a few weeks ago, holy orders, as I preached on last week, and now this week, we'll be talking about the anointing of the sick. Uh, When I was pastoring a church in Peoria, Illinois, There was this couple that I met. Uh, They had married really, really young, as you do in evangelicalism as well as in Catholicism so you don't burn with lust. (laughs) And so as they got married, they began to sort of have these conversations about what they wanted for their lives. They began to try to have children. And very early on, he disclosed to his wife that he struggled with same-sex attractions. Not knowing what to do with this, they decided to seek out uh, reparative therapy as well as marriage counseling. In the marriage counseling, they would get advice like she just needed to be more attractive or she needed to woo him better and that she was doing things wrong and this was why he wasn't attracted to her and why it was hard for him to overcome these desires. So she carried a lot of guilt and shame. He carried a lot of guilt and shame himself for not being able to change, not being able to, to, to work the programs that he was going through. Eventually, they had... Uh, little girls, and they raised them, had a beautiful life together, but also really struggling to remain faithful inside of those marriages and having to make decisions about being ethically non-monogamous and what that looked like and how that felt for her to want to be able to raise her children with her husband, but also it not feeling like it fit with their ethics or their theology or their beliefs, that this was not how they had imagined their marriage and life panning out. Ever been there? Ever had a relationship or a marriage or a connection where you're like, this is not what I had dreamed, or this is not the person that I thought I had married? Whether we become something different or we are something different and life reveals that, this is where they found each other. And after raising their children, Karen turned to Randy one day and said, Randy, it is, it's time for you just to be your true self, and that's not married to me. And so she gave him this permission he had been waiting to hear for him to just go and to live the life he wanted. Now close to age of retirement, he, he goes out into the world to experience the world in a new way. And for a decade, he was able to live his life as an openly gay man. He had a couple relationships. However, finding himself single, he also found himself finding out that he had a diagnosis of cancer. He didn't know what he was going to do. He was so scared. He felt so alone. So much of his life panned out different than he had anticipated. And Karen, who is an incredible woman... Uh, that I respect so deeply, she told him to come home. And as her best friend, she would take care of him. And so 
in his final years of life, um, their relationship healed and entered into new meanings and definitions. And this is in their story where I met them as their pastor. And their love for one another and care for one another as friends be above all else was so evident to me. And I remember um, he, did, he couldn't make it to the church because he was so ill, so Karen would often uh, watch church from home with him. This was even before the time of the pandemic when we were streaming. And uh, I remember going to the house to visit Randy for the first time and sitting with him. And uh, as I walked into the room, he had this big rainbow blanket over him. And I was like, wow, I, I love your rainbow blanket. He just always sat in this reclining chair because his health was declining and declining. And he said, thank you. He said, my daughter bought this for me. And he said, I can't tell you how much it meant to me when my daughter bought me this rainbow. I just felt so seen, so loved, so understood. And he said, so I, this, is, this is my go-to blanket. And it reminds me that I'm loved by my family. And over the next uh, year or so, we just, I would go to visit him, and he would share with me stories about his life, regrets, things he wished that had been, he had been able to do, things that he wished had been different. And at the end of his life, uh, we began to have conversations around what was his life going to look like uh, after this. He wondered if God would let him into heaven. He wondered what God would say to him about how messy his marriage was. He wondered if God would say to him that it is okay to be gay or not. And he remember him looking at me and saying, you know, I never in my entire life thought I would have an openly gay pastor. And your presence in my life has given me such a reassurance that if you can make it, I can make it. <laughs> and I remember in my final time with him, him asking me to pray for him. And as I knew he was nearing death, I decided I would also bring oil. He came from a Catholic background, and he had kept mentioning last rites as well. And I know in the Catholic tradition, they often pray over individuals, and they'll anoint their heads with oil. And so I did. I brought oil I sang songs that were familiar to him, anointed his head, I anointed his feet, I anointed his hands, and it reminded him that he would soon open his eyes and he would enter into paradise and it would be a whole new beginning all over again. Randy is gone now. I think, was, did you all get to see a picture of Randy? It should be a photo of Randy. He's in paradise, and uh, Karen's life is entering to new meanings and definitions with their grandchildren, and she's living with their family, has now moved in with them, and uh, out of Peoria, where we, where we once were. I think that sometimes sitting with people in pain and suffering is a really hard thing, and sometimes the church, historically, we want to just figure out how to solve and heal and make everything right, make the hard emotions go away, but unfortunately, that is not the reality that Jesus called us to. The history of the church is that we are to anoint the sick and to sit with them. And this doesn't always mean, anointing of the sick actually doesn't mean what some people think, which is that, like, it's to heal or it's to change something. Sometimes it can mean that, but it's not, it's not and was never really the intention of the church historically. Now, I realize that we're not Catholic, but the history of the Catholic church is still part of our story. So it's so important for us to remember and to own that for ourselves, because folks who've hurt by the church, been hurt by the church throughout history, they don't separate out, oh, well, you were Protestant, you were Catholic, it's fine. They don't do that. It's all part of our story. It doesn't matter where the hurt came from or what vein or line of the faith. And so I think it's important for us to, to think about this. The Catholic Church defines this, uh, this sacrament of the anointing of the sick as a channel of special grace from God that comforts and heals physically and or spiritually people who are seriously ill or in danger 
of death. Here's a few times in ways that throughout history, the church has used this sacrament. They've used this sacrament um, either before surgery or a serious illness. They've used it to provide courage or strength or peace to people, to give the sick person grace until they're suffering, uh, to unite their suffering to Christ, to provide physical or spiritual healing if it's God's will, to offer to uh, offers to prepare people for death. If you think about like Mary and the oil she brings in Jesus's feet just days before he's arrested and taken to the cross, it was preparing his body, anointing him for which was a very normal and natural uh, uh, ritual throughout Christian history. Particularly because often they didn't put the, the the dead on the ground; they put them in tombs and they would smell. And so you would prepare the body with spices and oils. So this is some of the more tradition there. Acts, it also acts as a confession if you are too sick to confess. Very Catholic, right? <laughs> so I, I also think it's important to remember that with this sacrament, historically, only for a very small period of time throughout history, were, 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 were just lay people, people who weren't, Christ, who weren't priests or pastors, able to actually provide this to people. Uh, and so where does this come from, this idea? Well, it comes from James chapter 5, and let's read this verse together. The idea that this is a sacrament and the idea that this should be reserved only for the priests and the pastors comes from James 5. James writes, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church. Remember we talked about last week, elders means pastors of the church, to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up if they have sinned, and they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, it's interesting here if you look in this. It says, bring the elders of the church to pray, right? But then it also says, pray for one another that you may be healed. Yet, it's often throughout history, it just, well, we just focused on the first few verses. <laughs> Classic Christians. <laughs> And, and it's like, well, keep reading. It's not just the elders of the church, okay? And it's like we all have the ability to sit with and to provide comfort and love and courage. And what does healing mean as well? That's an important thing to think about. Healing does not always mean or have to mean the removal of the situation. But instead, it could mean courage or groundedness in the midst of it. It cannot, it, sometimes it isn't always a physical healing. Sometimes it's a spiritual or emotional healing. I know there were plenty of times in my life when I asked God to change me, just as Randy said in his story, right? Asking God to change our sexualities. And I will get so angry with God because God wasn't answering my prayer. Well, come to find out, God was like, because that's not something we need to heal. Instead, God healed my, my mindset. God changed my heart uh, because the, what, he, what I was saying needed to be healed didn't. Amen? And so sometimes, yeah, go ahead. That's a worthy thing to give thanks for that revelation. So I think that's one thing to think about when we think about this, but also uh, another element to think about when you think about the, um, the, the, the anointing of the sick is that historically the church has also often held a view that there, is a pers- there, there are some persons that are given the gift of healing, and this comes out of Corinthians chapter 12. We won't read the whole thing, but it's basically a list of different people who are given different gifts and abilities in the church. And so the church also wrestled with, well, maybe there's just certain people who are like faith healers, or they have certain strength or ability to heal people. So the church has always sort of lived in this tension of like, what do we do with those who are sick? And we'll be doing a series eventually throughout this in the, this year called I Will Not Be Silent, and we'll talk about different groups who have historically been silenced and how we can view and support them as a church. And in and, and, and one of those series, we'll be talking about those who live with disabilities and how we can interact with them in a way that isn't uh, assuming that they need to be healed. 
Um, and Jesus often engages with people with a sense of agency when he comes to them. To, Do you want to see? Do you want to walk? Yes. And I, I always heard it growing up, people would make fun of, like, why did Jesus ask them that? I mean, clearly they want to walk. Of course they want to walk. Of course they want to see. Maybe they don't. Maybe they don't. Maybe they were born that way, and that is their existence, and they're okay with that, and they have, not in, they have no other interest in anything else. And so why don't, why don't we give them their agency and ask them that as Jesus does? We'll talk more about that. But I wanted to bring that up. Okay, so quickly, like, let's, let's do like a big zoom out. Remember I talked about the Catholic history? I, you know how I love history. So I would love for us to just take a moment, and I want us to like, look how this sacrament has changed throughout time. And as we do it, to invite ourselves to how we can live into this sacrament now in the present day. So the sacrament in the second and, and, and through the fourth century, the idea was often... Uh, uh, the biggest impressions or influencers was Tertullian. And he believed that the bishops should, should bless the oil and bless the people, and in through doing so, people will be given courage or people might be healed. Then in this, and, in, and also in the second century, someone by the name of Origen, one of our church fathers, he believed that healing is, was spiritual and not actually physical. This is because he often interpreted the book of James, uh, the verse we read earlier, very differently than others in, throughout church history might have. In the fourth century, though, the church started using anointing oil as medicine. And so they would have people take, like this is anointing oil here. I doubt it was in this plastic va- va- you know, bottle back then. But they would have people drink it. They'd say, well, maybe if they drink a little bit of this. I mean, it's almost like that whole, like, remember when Trump said, like, drink, uh, aunts, uh, what was it? Uh, what was it again? It was like Lysol bleach. It would just clean you out, right? Well, this was, this was your old ancient time Trump, okay? It was like, eat, drink, eat and drink this right here, and then you'll feel good. It'll wash you out. It'll clean you. It'll, it'll make you healing. And, you know, people got a little sick from that for a while. So then maybe this isn't working. Then they would say, well, let's, let's rub it on the diseases or painful areas. Maybe it'll heal that specific area. This, is, this really came because, remember, remember, remember when Christianity has its beginnings, it's got Jews coming together, and you have pagans. And pagans loved very odd medicines. And they came up with their, all their different mixes and nuances of things. And so they had lots of oils and things. And so they were like, well, that's what it'll be. It'll be like a magic potion we'll put together. Which seems very, it makes complete sense to me, right? When you have these two religions trying to come together and make sense of this, uh, this mysterious thing that we can't quite make sense of. In the 5th century then, Pope Innocent, he says that we should bless the oil and then we should actually start letting lay people go out and use it because there's too many people who are sick and you need not enough priests and bishops and so we just need to empower other people. I love that. I love that. Makes sense to me. So all of a sudden they're allowed to use it. But then guess what? In the 8th century, uh, the the, the church decides, eh, never mind. Let's stop that. We're not going to do that anymore. We need, to, we need to pull back power on the people. They're getting a little bit too much power, a little bit too much authority. That's not okay. We don't want that. We want them to know that we're the ones with the healing powers over here. So priests begin to sort of pull that back. In the 12th century, though, all references to physical healing were completely dropped out of prayers, and it was simply focused on comfort. Simply focused on comfort, bringing emotional healing. And then in the 6th century, which is about a century later, is when we have the, the birth of Protestantism, which is what we are today. You have the Council of Trent. And this is when they decided they would start anointing people again for strength and for courage for the sick. And often this was most often done now in modern day, as people are dying, referred to as last rites. This is the history, okay? So there's, there's a little bit of an overview. So here's what I want us to take away from this long history of this sacrament. What I think is beautiful about it, as odd as maybe it may be or seem to us at times, 
it was completely countercultural to the time. Completely countercultural to the time. To offer and extend grace and love to people who were often cast away and forgotten. Mercy and compassion was not a quality of the Roman Empire. You were sick, you were not an asset. You needed to be killed off. You needed to be left to die. It was basically Darwinism before it existed. It was this mindset of the, the weak will die and the strong will survive. We don't have time, we don't have resources to take care of you. And your sickness could pass to us and kill us, so the quicker you die, the more we can control this. No masks, okay? This is, this is their mindset there. And the church comes around and they're like, no, no, no. Let us figure out ways that we can love and care for these people. The church comes around and they're like, no, no, no. How can we actually support people who are imprisoned and not just forget them and lock them away, but how can we bring them food and medicine and support and care? How can we support those who are sick and cast aside? How, can we also cons- how, how, how also can we support the children who are unwanted? We know throughout church history that often if somebody had a child and they did not want them, they would throw them into the garbage heaps, often referred to as Gehenna. And it was cast away, a way of society, and they would just die. And this was basically, in many ways, uh, the sort of form, their form of abortion. And often the church would go into these garbage dumps, and they would dig through the garbage listening for the cries, and they would pull the babies out. This is why you may notice a lot of institutions, both orphanages and hospitals, created by Christians. This is why they often are after Christian names and so forth. Because the church just decided historically that they did not just want to cast aside those who were orphaned, those who were sick, and those who were imprisoned, but instead we were called to care for them. And so they created something in our culture that's very countercultural, what was normal. It was actually in Alexandria, Egypt, that, a, that the very first hospital and transport system started. In, and this was a, a really incredible, incredible time that they took 416 men who were often part of the poor class and they decided that they would go and they would be create an ambulance service, basically. And they would round people up and they would bring them to the hospital to a central place to care for them. This is what I'm talking about. This is the church of the future. This is a church that isn't just known for what it's against, but what it's for. This is a church that sees a problem in its community and actually meets it. This is the church of the next 500 years. This is the church that we need to be again. Not a church that fights to take people's rights away, but a church that gives people rights, that fights for them and empowers them and creates new systems that can change the world when the government can't and doesn't. We need a church that is full of priests and people who leave the comforts of the church to go out to the people. To love and to care for them as the church has historically done when the world told them not to. To stay away from those kind of people. The church has historically been uh, condemned for going out to the sick and the unclean. And I hope that we would continue to be a people who would be known to go out to the sick and the unclean and the forgotten. To anoint their pain and throw a rainbow blanket around it. One of the gifts that I was given... After Randy passed, his, his wife, uh, or I should say best friend at that point, came to me after the funeral and said, Randy wanted me to give you something. He bought you your own rainbow blanket. And I'm like, oh, I love that blanket. Thank you. And every time I see this rainbow blanket, I think of Randy all curled up in it. And I think about how it, it enfolded him with this comfort of love. 
That every time he wore it, he thought about how his daughter no longer worried about changing him, but instead about how to love him for who he was. Every time he sat in that chair, he thought about how cared for. Every time he sat in that chair, he was, he was comforted by the love of God through God's people. And when I see this uh, blanket, that's all I think about. I think about how it is a sign and it is a symbol of the love of God in my life and in others' lives. And sometimes I think the church is so quick to just push, push past people's pain, to isolate them, instead of learn to embrace their pain, to find quick ways to solve the solutions. But instead, we need to remind them that God is with them, and we do that through this community of faith. We can't always cure someone's illness or pain or suffering, but we can sit with them in it. We can anoint their pain. We can light a candle and throw a rainbow blanket around it and say, I am with you through whatever you're going through. It's a story of a woman I know who, who miscarried in one of my uh, last churches. She was devastated in the things that the church said to her in order to make, make her feel better or to push it under the rug. I, I don't even care to repeat them. I wrote them down and decided I did not going to repeat them because I don't need to repeat lies. All I need to do is repeat truth, which is that that church should have realized that there is not many things to say in that moment besides, I am so sorry. Can I hold you? Can I sit with you as you cry? How painful. You should have never had to experience that. I'm so sorry. That is all there is. Rachel Held Evans says, there is a difference between curing and healing. And I believe the church is called to the slow and difficult work of healing. We are called to enter into one another's pain, anointed as holy, and stick around no matter what the outcome is. And so our faith church, it tells us that, that Jesus Yes, Jesus can often sometimes take the pain away, but not all the time, and that's up for Jesus to decide. But instead, Jesus models for us what it means to sit with people in their pain, to sit with people in their hurt, to sit with people in their divorce or their diagnosis or their depression or their miscarriage. Whatever that may be, Jesus calls us to often sit with it because that's healing. It may not be a cure, but it's healing to the soul. Brene Brown describes this, who's, you know, the, the best person on these types of things, of, of healing these sorts of wounds through vulnerability. She says, I went to church thinking it would be like an epidural, that it would take the pain away. But church isn't like an epidural, amen? <laughs> it's like a midwife, she says. I thought faith would say, I'll take away the pain and the discomfort, but what it ended up saying was, I'll sit with you in it. I'll sit with you in it, church. And I can remember as I start to try to land this plane here, <laughs> uh, it feels like it's already in pieces, but as I sit to land this plane, I can't help but stop and think about a, uh, a time when I was serving as a chaplain at Northwestern Memorial Hospital, and there was a man that I would, I would visit pretty frequently, and I always noticed he had no visitors, no one would come to see him. And I asked him about that one day, and he talked about how he was estranged from his family, there was a lot of pain and difficulty there. And then as I got ready to leave one day, I said, can I pray for you? And he said, sure. And I started to pray, and he said, would you hold my hand? So I held his hand, and we prayed, and then I looked up, and he had these tears, just huge, baptized-like tears running down his face. And I said, are you okay? He said, I haven't been touched besides put IVs and needles in me in weeks. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. 
And I held his hand a little bit longer, and I said, can I sing to you? He said, please. So I held his hand, and I sang to him. And then the next time I came back, I thought I should take essential oils. And I should take his socks off and his shoes off, and I'm going to rub his feet with these essential oils. And so I sat at the end of his bed, and we just talked, and I rubbed his feet. And he made the most awkward noises. (laughs) It was the most spiritual, yet erotic experience of my life. I'm like, for him, mostly, not for me, really. But these groans were groans that words could not describe. These groans were prayers deep within his belly of, I need to feel seen and touched and loved. And thank you for not forgetting me that I don't just need a cure in this place, but I need healing. I need someone to sit with me in my pain. So church, that's, the, that, that's my hope for us, that we could be people like that. Rachel Held Evans describes it best in all of these different ways, but what she says, what I love most about the gift of anointing with oil is I invite the worship team to come and we prepare for communion. And she says that uh, um, God gave us this gift of anointing with oil because God wants us to know what God's scent is like. When we come to the table for communion, we, we, we engage our senses. We taste God. When we smell the oil, we smell God. When we experience the hug of community, we experience the, the touch of God. When people sit with us in our pain and they pray with us, we experience the spirit of God through music. Whatever this may be, that there, there is an engagement with our bodies and the oil is a gift and a sign and a moment to invoke something in us. I remember the very first time I went to QCF, which is Q Christian Fellowship. I hadn't taken communion in a long time because I had, was so, so hurt by the church. And I remember walking to the front to receive both communion as well as being anointed on the head. And I remember the, the sweet taste of the juice for the first time in a year and going, God, tastes good. I remember the bread going down my throat and going, man, that's dry. <laughs> but God is good. And I remember smelling the oil on my head as they reminded me of my baptism and my belovedness. And I remember thinking, thank God, all the parts of my body are reassembled. And I am remembering, remembering who I am. I am remembering who I am. So as you come today, and we are going to invite you to engage in maybe a new practice for you. We invite you to come and you can receive the bread and the juice. It's gluten-free and juice in solidarity with those who are in recovery, as well as so our children can participate. But then if you wish, uh, Vanita and I will be standing here in the front. And if you wish to have your hand anointed as a reminder that we stand with you and the Spirit is in you and around you and loves you, you may come and receive. We will not, we'll not let's wait one moment before we receive. <laughs> Everyone really wants communion today. And you receive uh, on the hand if you want to go to Vanita. And for me, I will give you on the forehead. So whichever your preference is. And then you will go back to our seats. And once you have the elements, then we'll take it together all uh, in a little bit together. So hear these words before you come for communion that I want you to reflect on. These are for the words of Rachel Held Evans. Communion is like a sweet healing salve for me. It unites me to my past. It challenges my criticism. It allows me each time I take it to heal a little bit more, to extend a little more grace, to reframe my past, to find the good in the theologies that sometimes hurt me, and to be grateful for the journey and the people I met on it.
Communion is my anointing oil. It's my healing. It's what unites me to my past and holds me in the present. I am met at this table for healing, and I am able to extend healing at this table. May we be those people as we usher in the next 500 years. Come, receive both the taste and the scent of God. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.